my pod people. This is Historical AF. My name is Natalie. I'm Kina. I'm Megan. Yay! Yay! We are a historian, a librarian, and a special guest bringing you the funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nugs you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Yep, and today is 64, episode 64, and we're bringing the music back to you. And I'm excited for this one because I get to talk about drums. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then Kina can bring us down with her stupid depressing shit. God damn it. It's so sad. Oh, I cried. Do you start with that one? Yeah, it's like a band-aid. We should just rip that off. <laughs> we are before we rip off band-aids and go into deep depression. We're super excited that Megan is back with us. Megan is one of my best, closest friends from college, even though we only mainly creeped each other from Facebook from afar. Best of all, I've always like, she's my girl. Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> I mean, I've only hung out with you for two hours and 20 minutes, but you're cool. So I'm really glad you're back. I know. You've really taked every one of Kina's boxes of life and fire. You have. <laughs> like, um, this you're girl, my best friend now, and I don't know if you know that or not. Like, this girl is so cool. She's got a Pokemon tattoo and Red Hot Chili Peppers tattoo. What? Yeah, that's me. They're one of them. <laughs> you they need were... to be more excited about this. <laughs> that was the first concert I ever went to, like knowingly as a almost adult. Was Red Hot Chili? So jelly, like they so. were opening for Creed. So probably not a great time in their life. <laughs> but <laughs> I still got to see them. <laughs> I know you can still blame it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it was like sixth grade. It was a long time ago, but uh, it was good. <sighs> yeah, you have checked all my boxes. You talked about Dave Grohl, you talked about all the things I love. So, super excited you're back. <laughs> I'm glad. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Uh, let's rip that bandit off and depress the shit out of everybody. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah, there's a 90% chance I'll cry. So, I'm so sorry. I. I just felt like with everything going on in the world, when I thought about music, I thought about the saddest song I've ever heard in my life. So this is going to be painful and uncomfortable and soul-wrenching. So we don't usually do trigger warnings, but I know everything's pretty traumatic in the world right now. So uh, this is that. But I really thought it would be a disservice not to do this song with everything happening. <sighs> And I personally don't think there's ever been a song that has ever knocked the physical air out of me. I just think music is so powerful. Like, everybody has a different emotion with songs, but it's just this one particular song, Strange Fruit, seems to be so impactful for anybody that hears it. So this is what this segment's going to be about. Have you guys heard it? Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit? No, I have not. I might have, but I don't recognize it. Oh, (laughs) Yes, I do. <laughs> we didn't we just talk about this not long ago? I think so. I think I mentioned it. Um, I mean, you've mentioned it, and I read the lyrics to it. Yeah, it's it's rough, and it um, is brutal. We yes, we did. Yeah, I mentioned it because when I was like twenty two ish, I was in college, and because I'm old, and I was planning on being a teacher at that time, so I was like intro to education. And we had to do a portfolio and then we had to present a lesson plan. And young Kina was like, this is a great opportunity for me to teach my classmates about lynching. God help me. This is North Arkansas. 
20 minutes from the KKK did not go well <laughs> at all. Uh, so I did yeah. this whole presentation and I told the history and I read the poem that I'm about to read for you guys. And then I played the Billy Holiday version of the song and it didn't go any way I thought it would because I was so naive. But like everybody was so incredibly uncomfortable that nobody would have a discussion about my lesson plan. And I think that's the one thing I, I wanted to do this for is because I know everybody's kind of discouraged about this movement, thinking that nothing's different from the past movements. But this time, people are actually embracing their uncomfortableness and being willing to talk about it. So all that weird anecdote just to say that I, I really do appreciate this opportunity to actually discuss this in a time where I think people are actually going to appreciate it yeah. and like face racism and the shittiness that we're living in that has been forever because when I did this lesson plan, I, I am positive. Like, I was 22. That was a long time ago. I don't remember it. But I'm pretty sure that <laughs> past me had a disconnect as of lynchings, thinking it was the history, not the present. And then everything you see in the news today, like, it's happening right now. And ugh, so I think this, that's why I was like, I don't want to depress everybody. <laughs> but at the same time, like, this is kind of important. So yeah. even today... June 18th, 2020, this is when we're recording right now, the U.S. Congress is trying to pass the anti-lynching act called the Emmett Till Act, and it's named after the 14-year-old boy who was murdered in Mississippi in 1955. We've talked about him on the podcast, and this would make lynching a federal crime in the United States. And it is not being passed because it is being blocked by the U.S. Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. So as of today, he is still blocking it. And he's saying that because definition of the lynching bill, the the wording says is a conspiracy to commit bodily harm in connection with a hate crime. And he's saying that they need to reword it to say seriously bodily injury so that it could only mention like substantial risk of death and extreme physical pain. But I did find a quote from Reverend Jesse Jackson who said it the best. Judges are going to know the difference between a scratch and lynching. So I don't know why they're holding this up, but I just thought that it's like right. gut-wrenching that today we still can't call it a hate crime. Wow. It's just, it's so, so anyway, if you go to paul.senate.gov, you can send him an email telling him how you feel about this. <laughs> and if you're from Kentucky, he, you are his con constituent and you deserve to be heard. So you can actually go send letters to his office. You can call his office. You can do stuff and like, tell him how you feel about this because he's the only person holding this up right now. Yeah. And I swear I'm going to get to the song, but I'm doing a little, a little background on lynching in the U S because there's stuff even I didn't realize. And a lot of this is coming from the NAACP and then also PBS because they had some really good information. So throughout the late 19th century, Tension grew throughout the United States, and this is a quote from the NAACP group. It says, more of the tension was noticeable in the southern parts of the United States. In the South, people were blaming their financial problems on the newly freed slaves that lived around them. Lynchings were becoming a popular way to resolve some of the anger that whites had in relation to free blacks. Yowza. So from 1882 to 1968, 4,743 lynchings occurred in the United States. Jesus Christ. Of those people were 3,446 people were black. That's 72.7%. Oh, 
And those like it's a large number, but also the majority of lynchings were not reported. So it's way more than that. Yeah. Out of 4,743, they were white. And that's 27.3%. And what I didn't realize is that a lot, there's a, it's kind of disproportionate. Some of the whites that were lynched were lynched for helping blacks and being anti-lynching and even for domestic crimes. Mississippi had the highest lynching rate from 1882 to 1968 with 581. Georgia was second with 531. And Texas was third with 493. 79% of all lynchings happened in the South. Of the lynching that didn't take place in the South was in the West. And the thing that surprised me is that anything that happened in the West was actually whites being lynched. And that was mostly for murderers and cattle thieves. So if you're in the South, Almost entirely, it's going to be black Americans getting lynched. But if you're in the West, it's almost entirely white people getting lynched. So there's your discrepancies in the totals and stuff. And this is also why the argument where it can't be that bad white people got lynched too is not correct. Because when we're talking about lynchings in the South, they were almost 100% black. And anything that the white cases don't fit into that because the white cases have to do with the old West version of justice, quote unquote, and anybody in the South being lynched. That is just purely about racism and hate. None of this I was taught in school and not all States lynched people. Some States didn't have a single person on record and that's Alaska, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And then some States didn't, lynch any black Americans, and that's Arizona, Idaho, Maine, Nevada, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wisconsin. Though debated, some historians say that the first lynching took place in St. Louis. And then states, I know this is really heavy, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to talk really fast. It's so bad. (sighs) States in the former Confederacy passed laws, the Jim Crow laws, preventing black men from voting and use the threat of lynching to halt objections. And they were also infused to enforce racial segregation and to prevent African-American economic advancement, which is really big in Arkansas because we're really known for the Little Rock Nine segregation situation. And then also, like, even the interstate was put in that specific place because it just destroyed Black Wall Street and all their businesses. And, like, this is all very... And that's where the protest was in Little Rock. So I'm like, it's just so impactful historically to see where people are protesting, particularly, or a lot of the black businesses that were bulldozed in these eras. Yeah. And you know, what's crazy is like, I didn't even know about that until recently, like the whole mm-hmm. like Black Wall Street and it getting burned and stuff. And yeah, yeah. Tulsa, <laughs> we actually had an episode where Nat read some articles about it, about how now it's being required in Oklahoma to talk about it and. Almost every teacher in Oklahoma was like, I never learned this. I didn't know it happened. So, I mean, like, it's a step forward that people are having to learn about it. But I'm like, it's how many years later? This is just. Yeah. Long overdue. Yeah. It's oh, it's gut-wrenching. So, like, the worst. No, this is all bad. So, I can't say the worst part. But photos <laughs> of the lynchings started to appear on postcards. And they would have racist poems and words on them. And images often included black mutilated bodies hanging from trees while people are just standing around smiling with their children. In 1930, a white Jewish teacher and civil rights activist from the Bronx, Abel Mirapol, came across one of these photos of the lynching of two black men in Indiana. 
According to the author Gerald Pellison, Maripol was, quote, very disturbed at the continuation of racism in America and seeing a photograph of a lynching sort of put him over the edge. Maripol once said that the photo haunted him for days, so he wrote a poem about it, which was printed in a teacher's union publication. And then he was also an amateur composer, so then he set the words to music. He played it for a New York club owner who ultimately gave it to Billie Holiday. When Holiday decided to sing Strange Fruit, the song reached millions of people. While the lyrics never mention lynching, the metaphor is painfully clear. I hope I can get through this. Okay. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves, blood on the root. Black bodies swing in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south. The bulging eyes and twisting mouth. Scent of magnolia sweet and fresh. And the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck. For the rain to gather and the wind to suck. For the sun to rot, for the tree to drop, here is a strange and bitter crop. In 1999, Time Magazine named Strange Fruit the Song of the Century. The Library of Congress put it in their National Recording Registry. It has been recorded a dozen of times. Herbie Hancock and Marcus Miller did an instrumental version, with Miller evoking a poem on his mournful bass clarinet. Miller said that he was surprised to learn that the song was written by a white Jewish guy from the Bronx. Strange Fruit, he says, took an extraordinary courage for both Maripol to write and for Holiday to sing. Quote, the 60s hadn't happened yet, he says. Things like this weren't talked about, and they certainly weren't sung about. New York lawmakers didn't like Strange Fruit. In 1940, Maripol was called to testify before a committee investigating communism in public schools. They wanted to know whether the American Communist Party had paid him to write the song. They had not, but like many New York teachers in his day, he was actually a communist. Journalist David Margulik, sorry, who wrote Strange Fruit, the biography of a song, says there are millions of reasons to disparage communism now, but American communism, one point in its favor, was concerned about civil rights very early on in American history. It was just like a weird detour. Um, Abel Amiripal's pen name was Lewis Allen, (laughs) and they were the name of his two children that were stillborn. (laughs) Okay, this is not lighter at all. Sorry. Um, but his son, Robert Mirapol, and his other brother, Michael, were raised by April and his wife, Anne, after the boy's parents, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, were executed for espionage in 1953. Julius and Ethel were sentenced to death for conspiring to give atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. And then the Rosenbergs had also been communists. So the couple's trial and execution made national headlines, and there was also something of a salacious element, given that the Rosenbergs were a married couple, so they were the first time that a husband and wife were killed by electric chair at the same time. So it was like a giant thing. Robert says that the months following his parents' execution, it was unclear what would happen to him and his brother. It was the height of McCarthyism, and his family and people that they knew were really fearful of them because of the communism. So they were at a Christmas party with W.E.B. Du Bois. Ever heard of them? And they were introduced to Abel and Anne. And a few weeks later, they were living with them. So you just found two orphan kids. It was like, I'm not afraid to take care of you. Just a good dude. And then I saw that, like, right before Obama left office, that Robert was trying to clear his parents' name for the murder. But I guess Obama didn't do it. So that's kind of sad. But. Oh God, all this is so bad. I'm like, I'm like, maybe it'll get better. It's not. So 
When Holiday heard the lyrics, she was deeply moved by them, not only because she was a black American, but it, the song reminded her of her father, who died at 39 from a fatal lung disorder, all because he was turned away from the hospital because he was black. And because of the painful memories, she didn't enjoy singing Strange Fruit, but she knew she had to. Quote, it reminds her of how Pop died. Uh, she said that several times in interviews. But I have to keep singing it, not only because people asked for it, but because 20 years after Pop died, things that killed him are still happening in the South. And that just broke me because I'm like, these are happening today. Yeah. Like, black women are dying more than anybody because they're not getting me- medical care. And I just. So Holiday road tested the song at a party in Harlem and received what would become a familiar response. Shock silence followed by a roar of approval. Mirapal was actually there the night that she debuted it, and he said, quote, She gave a startling, most dramatic and effective interpretation, which could jolt an audience out of complete complacency anywhere, he marveled. This was exactly what I wanted when I wrote the song. Holiday's regular label, Columbia, did not want to record it. They were like, we're not doing it. So she turned to Commodore Records, a small left-wing operation based in Milk Gabler's record shop. On the 20th of April, 1939, Holiday entered the world broadcasting studios of Frankie Newton's eight-piece Cafe Society band and recorded Strange Fruit in a four-hour session. Worried that the song was too short, Gabler asked pianist Sony White to improvise a suitably stealthy introduction. On the single, Holiday doesn't even open her mouth until 70 seconds in. Like Josephine with his spotlight, the musicians use that time to set the scene, drawing the listener in as if to tell a ghost story. And this next part's a quote from The Guardian. Quote, Newton's muted trumpet line hovers in the air like marsh gas. White's minor piano chords walk the listener towards the fateful spot. Then at last there's holiday. Others might have overplayed the irony or the punched home or moral judgment too forcefully but she sings it as though it's her responsibility to simply document the song's eerie tableau to bear witness. Her voice moves softly through the dark, closing in on the swinging bodies like a camera lens coming into focus. In doing so, she perfects the song, narrowing the sarcasm of Gallant South to a fine point and cooling the temperature of the most overheated image, the stench of burning flesh. She is charismatic, but not ostentatious. Curling the words just so, her gifts to the song are vulnerability, understatement, and immediacy. The listener is right there at the base of the tree looking. She is saying, just look. (sighs) What a quote. Oh, man. While civil rights activists and Black America embraced strange fruit, the nightclub scene, which was primarily composed of white patrons, had mixed reactions. At witnessing Holiday's performance, audience members would applaud until their hands hurt while less sympathetic people would just walk out the door very angry. One individual who's determined to silence Holiday was Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner Harry Anslinger, a known racist. He believed that drugs caused Black people to overstep their boundaries in American society and that Black jazz singers who smoked marijuana created devil's music. It's like, you can't make this shit up. It's just so... What is wrong with people? Yeah. So he forbade Holiday to perform Strange Fruit. She refused, and it caused him to devise a plan to destroy her. So instead of just being like, okay, let's deal with it, he's like, no, I'm just going to be a shady fuck and let's just whatever. <laughs> Knowing that she was a drug user, she was addicted to drugs at the time, he had some of his men frame her for by selling her heroin. 
When she was caught using the drug, she was thrown into prison for the next year and a half. Upon Holiday's release in 1948, federal authorities refused to reissue her cabaret performer's license, so her nightclub days were done. Wow. It just makes me sad. <laughs> I know. Yeah. She was one of the most talented singers. I didn't know that's how, but I didn't know any of that that happened. I, I, always, I, I liked, didn't either. I always admired her, but I didn't know anything about the drugs. Me either. I just, I love her. I had no idea. Still determined to soldier on, she performed to sold-out concerts at Carnegie Hall, but still the demons of her difficult childhood, which involved working at a brothel alongside her prostitute mother, did not realize how dark her past was either. And it just haunted her because, I mean, this is the time where there's no therapy. Nobody's getting help. And there's absolutely no help for Black Americans. Nobody's going to help them. She fell back to using heroin again. In 1959, Holiday checked herself into New York City Hospital, suffering from a heart and lung problem and cirrhosis of the liver due to decades of drug and alcohol abuse. The singer was emaciated and her once heart, oh God, this part killed me. Her once heartfelt voice was now withered and raspy. She could, like, couldn't even talk anymore. Still bent on ruining her life, Anslinger had his men go to the hospital and handcuff her to the bed. And although Holiday had been showing gradual signs of recovery, Anslinger's men forbade doctors from offering her any treatment, and she died within days. Jesus Christ. Like, they literally fucking killed her. Yeah. God, despite her tragic demise, Holiday has a lasting legacy in the world of jazz and pop music. She garnered 23 Grammys posthumously and was recently inducted into the National Rhythm Blues Hall of Fame. Among the many songs Holiday is celebrated for, Strange Fruit will always be one of her defining works. It allowed her to take what was originally an expression of political protest and transform it into a work of art for millions to hear. Strange Fruit was not by any means the first protest song, but it was the first to shoulder an explicit political message into an arena of entertainment. Unlike the robust workers' anthems of union movements, it did not stir the blood, it chilled it. That is not the ugliest song I've ever heard, said Nina Simone, who would later marvel, quote, ugly in a sense that it is violent and tears out the guts of what white people have done to my people in this country. For all these reasons, it is something entirely new. Up to this point, protest songs function as propaganda, but Strange Fruit proved to be art. So the song, I'm not going to play it because of copyright issues and stuff, but I really, really urge everybody to listen to Billie Holiday's version. It is haunting. Yeah, for sure. It will. I've never heard anything like it because it's beautiful. But at the same time, like, the words are just so chilling. And it's just so sad. And it's just, like, you see on the news, what is it, five black men now have been hanged and they're calling it suicides. But, I mean, everybody knows it's not. And you know what's crazy is, like, a lot of people I've seen, you know, of course, social media, everyone has their opinions. But, like, a lot of people are, like, you know, this isn't about race. And even if hypothetically it was not about race, initially people have definitely shown their true colors like in the aftermath, which I definitely think was race ensued. But just even that logic is just crazy to me. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, uh, the violence of it, pure violence of this and those that supported or that acted on this is appalling enough. And then you find out, well, they only did it because that person looked different than you mm-hmm. yeah like what the fuck 
It's just, it's devastating. Because when you think about our entire country, and Rafat said it beautifully when she was on our mini cab. She talked about how the only way you can enslave people, the only way you can do the things that we did to them in this country is to dehumanize them. And then when you really think about our whole country, even our founding fathers all had slaves. So when they made this constitution and they made this country, it was built on this idea that they were not people. And I'm like, I don't think that ever went away. No. I think that's what people are finally realizing. It's like as white women, we have privilege and we've never had to deal with this. But that's like I said, when I first did this thing, it's like everybody was so uncomfortable and they wouldn't let me talk. And they were just like, you're done. And they ended the class and it was like, I barely passed that class, but I'm like, now people are actually talking about it. So I'm like, I'm hoping this is a moment in history where we're finally embracing our uncomfortableness and embracing the things that we've been taught. I mean, I was raised in a really racist town, so I've been spending decades on learning everything that I learned, but yeah, same. It's even when you think that you're like cultured and like Mm -hmm. well-rounded, you don't realize how much of like, your being is engrossed in some of that stuff. And it's just yeah. like, it's heartbreaking really. And it's crazy. Cause I was reading the other day, trying to like research and learn. And they come over here to what's now Virginia. And when they set foot on like land, they didn't really have names. They described them as, you know, like vehemently different looking than us. Mm-hmm. And then they wrote into law that they were slaves. And then the second thing they did was write into law that, their children that the women had would automatically be slaves no matter who the dad was. So whoever sold it, it doesn't matter. Like we made those laws and we made it to where they would never not be slaves by birth. Like yeah. by birth. Like what the f- actual fuck? It's like bro. we have such a disconnect because I think a lot of people's arguments are like this is history. You should get over it. I'm like, but no, if you think about it, like some people's great grandparents, they were slaves. Like this isn't, so far removed that we're this isn't part of our life yeah like my grandpa he he I think it was either the year he graduated or the year after something like that that was when they desegregated so he was not in a school where there was or where there was desegregation he was in a school where it was always segregated and when I was researching this story the picture that Mirapol talks about that inspired strange fruit it showed an article and it was a man and it was his great uncle that got lynched and it's him holding the photo and the man's still alive like this isn't people like remember their family members being killed god it it is (laughs) so bad people were and it's the dehumanization is they didn't like one of our friends and she's been on a mini she's a patreon latoya she Mm. posted an article yesterday and there was they called it inward baby hitting and it was like a carnival game where you would throw stuff at babies mm-hmm. and you got extra points that the baby had just fed and it vomits and she's like it, she looked it up and it's real and it's just like people were so detached and it's like really the most horrible inhumane things that you could possibly do to another human being we did for hundreds of years and yeah, it's, it's very psychological so mm-hmm. I mean just the fact that even like I said, we can be well cultured and well versed, but at the same time, like it's so psychologically embedded that we have like a lot of work to do. Like even me, oh, yeah. you, you know, and it's you don't even realize it until you start really learning. Oh yeah, and I always felt like I was very cultured, and I thought, and I went to yeah. college, and I started learning about things, and it's like even in the last few years, 
and like realizing things that I've done. Like it's just microaggressions that I didn't even realize were bad. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a lot of learning. And I've also learned it's like, it's okay to be uncomfortable and it's okay to be embarrassed that you did or said or whatever. It's just like, if you don't move forward and learn and do better, then that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. And I saw one video of this woman just yelled the N word as somebody and then went to the police screaming about how she took a left or she passed her on the left. And I'm like, that's how you drive. And then she finally starts crying and says, I'm just tired of all this. I just, I'm tired of all the rioting and the looting and blah, 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 which is not a good argument anyway. That, oh, that, hasn't that gone down? Yeah. Now that people have like, are talking about peaceful protests so many times, I haven't heard anything yes. about looting exactly. and violence. But then she said something that was the point. She said, I want things to go back how it was. I don't like this. I'm tired. And then the woman yells, We've been tired for 400 years. And I was like, yeah. that video alone sums up this whole thing. Is that racists are tired because now they're uncomfortable and they want to go back to how it was before people made them uncomfortable. I actually started reading this book by Brene Brown called um, Braving the Wilderness. And I didn't know it was going to be about any of this. Honestly, she wrote it like a handful of years back. But she talks about how like how factioned we are and a lot of this kind of stuff, racial, racial tension, class and all that stuff. And honestly, the book really helped me like be grounded, I guess, because it's so overwhelming sometimes, especially, like I said, my grandpa grew up the way he did where he was in a school where he never encountered being in school with, you know, black people or anything like that. And we've had conversations and there's definitely a lot embedded in my grandparents, but at the same time, like, I can say that we've had really good conversations and instead of just like yelling at each other and like freaking out about everything, we've been able to kind of like just have a conversation. So if like, I've definitely learned how to have what I call like just constructive conversations. Yeah. Um, And I think that's a good thing. And I see a lot of people doing that. So there is some positive there. Sorry. It was so dark guys. I just, I don't know. I just felt it in my soul that I wanted to talk about it and get it out there. And yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really relevant and I think it's, it is, you know, like, I don't know. I think it's relevant. I think it's good. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, we want to tell you about our newest sponsor, Modern Fertility. I am super pumped about it. I'm going to spit some facts, Natalie. So what will you learn? One, if you have more or less eggs than average. Two, what you could expect from IVF or egg freezing. Three, how your hormone levels relate to PCOS, which one in 10 women have. For your general hormone health, which is a window into your broader health, you'll have a personal fertility team to help you understand your results and come up with a game plan. You get access to a team of fertility nurses, a weekly webinar, and their online community of a like-minded women. All test results are conducted in a CLIA certified lab and Modern Fertility's team of physicians and clinical advisors lead some of the nation's top fertility clinics. Shipping is free, hello, on all orders, and we only ship in the U.S. 
So this is the first comprehensive fertility hormone test for women ever, and you can take it at home. You get a choice. You can go to the lab if you want to, but I chose that at home. And like I said, one in six couples have trouble conceiving, and we just have so many tools to prevent pregnancy, but this is really the first tool to help have pregnancy. I'm 35, so I'm at that age where like, if I want to have kids, this is when I need to really figure it out. And even with Natalie, I know you don't want kids, but you know, you still want to know what your hormone health is like. Exactly. Or, you know, something's down the road. You just like freezing my eggs just in case or something. Yeah. Like that. Hormones be wild and y'all, it can make your hair all like fall out. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else it does. Like it's like everything, like your skin health, everything. Proactive fertility hormone tests aren't covered by insurance most of the time and it can cost upwards of $1,500. Yikes. And the best part is this test is $159 and if you use your code, you get $10 off. And it's so easy. It's at home. It's complete hormone panels. All you do is do the test, send it back to them, and you receive your results in under 10 days. So I sent mine in yesterday, and I'm anxiously awaiting mine. And this test gives you access to information you need to help plan ahead or navigate the world of fertility. And they also accept your FSA and HSA accounts. Those are hard to say. Bless you. But helpful. (laughs) Okay. So any woman in their 20s or 30s can benefit from this test. If you want to have kids in the next five years, if you're trying to get pregnant now, if you're considering freezing your eggs or IVF, if you're a mom considering another pregnancy or child, if you suspect your hormones are imbalanced, if you switched or went off birth control and you experience hormonal symptoms, if you suspect you have PCOS, if you're approaching menopause, yes, you can test if you're on birth control. All right, if you guys want to use our code, it's modernfertility.com forward slash historical AF. Again, that is modernfertility.com slash historical AF. One more time, that's modernfertility.com slash historical AF for $10 off. Okay, so you have music. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you got next? I promise my next story is funny. Okay. I didn't. I didn't do this twice. Now that we have our sad but inspirational talk over, because, you know, everyone can make a difference. Everyone keep doing what you're doing. Protest, spread the word, do what you do. Register to vote. There you go. Running out of time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Taken. We need to do that, like a vote countdown on our page. We should. Like, every state's different. I think Texas is really zeroing in soon. Well, if it's a different everywhere, then never mind. But it'd be, it'd be cool. It'd be cool if there was a site like a like a world clock or something, like every state's different. I'm sure like rockthevote.com or like vote.org or something. I'm sure all of them have something. Somebody's got it. Like never mind, it's too much work. Just vote. All right. Let's talk about drums. I know you're dying to. Yes. Yeah, when I saw, okay, so I have Random and it's drums, and yes, I play drums, or at least I, I used to. I still do a little bit, but not as much. Now that art has come into my life, that's pretty much taken over. But that does not mean I have, I don't have random instruments around my apartment. I'm like, by the TV is a, a bongo and a kalimba, and, <laughs> and my amazing. Closet, <laughs> in my closet, there's an electronic drum set that fits in a duffel bag. <laughs> It was out until I set up my art studio and then it went in the closet, which I highly recommend electric drum sets. 
because you can just put in headphones and play. It doesn't bother your neighbors as bad. Oh, that's cool. And now the technology for the drums are getting more and more better to simulate real drumming versus. <laughs> um, for those who can't watch, Canada just shoved <laughs> the sub in her face. <laughs> I just I have it on mute. <laughs> you can put you can still put it on mute. I mean, unless you want, we can do a whole segment of chewing. <laughs> <I'm> so hungry. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. But yeah, and then I have like I still have my trumpet, I've got a flute, I've got a clarinet. So even if I didn't end up finishing as a music major, I still have all of my instruments and play them here and there. But to drumming. So drums is my passion. I'm all about it. A quick shout out to Arkansas is I can't when I think of drums, I have to say percussion just because percussion is so widely spread. And so is that in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, there's a company called Damaro. And in my opinion, they make probably the best marimbas possible. They aren't like your Yamaha or like your big fancy industry of creating instruments. It's actually like this one old man that handcrafts oh. every bar of a marimba. If you know what a marimba is, it looks like a xylophone, but it sounds deeper. It's basically a big xylophone. Where the xylophone- an Animal Crossing. I got one. I shook it from is- the street. <laughs> of course. <laughs> is there one on Outlander too? She mentions Outlander a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just thought it was like an interesting because you can like get instruments. It's like a huge thing. You can have like whole band and then your villagers can play the music. It's really cute. That's gonna, wow. I'm going to be sad if that's like the only way someone knows a marimba. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe excited that they're inspired. Yeah. I know. I have mixed feelings. <laughs> because beforehand, people wouldn't, uh, people wouldn't know a marimba, but they know xylophone because what other word begins with X? Uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> So yeah, it is a, in case you haven't seen it and don't play Animal Crossing, I like <laughs> it is a big xylophone, where xylophone is very high pitch. It's usually made of wood, but there are synthetic. Each bar is only about an inch thick and about six inches or so long, like it's just long rectangles, like almost like a piano. And then marimbas are a lot wider and thinner bars. So they're kind of resonate and have like a much deeper and to me, a better quality of sound. And tomorrow is just this really cool company in Arkansas. They don't actually keep it in stock. You have to order it personally. And there is a waiting list because that's how awesome they are. And I know that guy, like when I was in college, my percussion teacher had actually told me that that guy was thinking of retiring soon. <laughs> and so oh, no. <laughs> he was training a couple of people as apprentices to take over the business. Oh, that's really cool, though. Like the whole apprentice thing. You don't hear that every day. Pretty much. Everything is made to order. So you can get exactly like how many octaves you want made and everything. I just think it's really cool. And it's just from here in Arkansas. And it's one of the best marimbas you can have, really. Because they get, I think it's like Brazilian rosewood. Oh, ow. Yeah. That sounds very fancy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what that is. Oh, that um, sounds very pretty. I can't remember, but they I think it is way from Brazil. And what they do is they have basically rectangles of wood and they hit it with a mallet and whatever 
piece of wood rings the longest, that is what will be the marimba. So there's a discard pile and the actual one. So they take each step and then they hand carve each bar to the note that it's supposed to ring as. And then they assemble everything. So like the frame of the marimba that holds all the bar, all the bars together, pieces of wood. And then the wood quality itself is just really good. Wow. Well, I do support Yamaha and the other stuff because, you know, it's probably cheaper. <laughs> the frame of them aren't always, they're like plastic, like thin yeah. metal. They're just not as good. Well, the Damara like always just looks beautiful. It's just really good. I was, I was lucky enough that, um, uh, SAU has a five octave tomorrow. So it's like a big ass giant marimba that you always had. If you wanted to take, move that any, that thing anywhere, we had to take it apart and it's heavy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like the most gorgeous sound in the world. I love yeah. that. Oh, that's so cool. And the fact and that it was made down the street. If you guys can't, you guys got to choose. All right join patreon like natalie you're like glowing talking about this it's, so well you you finally picked something i actually know about yeah, so, I'm so everything happy. else i'm like well let me look this up on google and read from this article like no this is something <laughs> I have memorized oh i love it yeah i didn't know they were based in arkansas yeah i didn't either that's, that's really crazy. cool i just started in fam so they're only like an hour away from me yeah hour and a half and and arkansas is like it's just a really random ass place. Not Little Rock <laughs> or Fayetteville, Hot Springs, like the most more well known of places. Oh, Arkadelphia, like backwoods. All right. So that's just like a little spiel about what's happening right now, what you should do if you are a band director listening to this and what marimba you should order, which is like completely not relevant to drums. Like it's just another cool percussion instrument. But I wanted to gloat about something Arkansas is really good at. That no one knows about. All right, drums. <laughs> drums are considered one of the oldest instruments in the world. I mean, you just hit stuff and you basically. <laughs> hit drum. All right, bye guys. <laughs> Done. That's what? the podcast. <laughs> that's it. We finished it. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> all right, that's it, y'all. I'm sorry, right, it's kidding. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, drum is drums are pretty much the oldest thing in the world. And people do make jokes about you just hitting stuff, but there's actually a lot that goes into it because Megan will know. <laughs> because of all the different styles and types, and then do you use drumsticks? Do you use mallets? Do you use brushes, especially for jazz if you're stirring? Do you use what size of drumsticks? Do you have plastic tips on the heads? Do you just keep it plain wood? There's graphite drumsticks. I just go on and on. I can't remember what the other ones. There's also one set of drumsticks that have like dowel rods. Like imagine five dowel rods taped together. Like huh. as bubbles. those are ghosty things. I know that from ghost hunts. I am a garbage human. <laughs> and ghosty things. <laughs> dowel rods. Dowel rods for ghost hunts. Okay. Well, if you bundle, like if you take a dowel rod, that's only. A foot and you group five thin ones together that is one stick and then you can have two of them and it makes a really cool sound it sounds like you have more than what's there basically oh that's it's cool. like a clap sound if you click them together but it also has a really cool effect on the drum i am learning so much <laughs>
We're in my element here. This is what most I'm of the woodwind. And it's long. This one's gonna be longest <laughs> ever. <laughs> so this dates back to prehistoric times. I did look up this one article that has like kind of a rundown timeline. So the first recorded appearance of drums were made out of alligator skins or like you know lizard oh. textures. Wow. Um, and this is from 5,500 BC. Wow. And this is around China that we have records of this. So people usually go Africa. And Africa, I feel like, is what is known for lots of drums. But this is actually China. That's really cool. In 3000 BC, that's where we start getting more bronze and adding a little bit of metal into our drums. And that's in northern Vietnam. To 1500 BC, like in Sri Lanka and then Africa, that's when we get into more of the drums that we know now, which is like wood with a skinhead. Oh. That doesn't mean they weren't making this before. This is when we started finding out like more proof. Mm-hmm. And then also you have to think about shipments and merchant trade. And so that's when things started being spread from China and, and Africa onto into Europe and whatnot. Yeah. So by 500 BC, that's when Taiko drums arrived in Japan and China. Um, Taiko drums are like these big body size barrel drums that I love how the J- Japanese use them. I think they're more well known at this point. And they use these giant fat mallet sticks and they use big, huge arm motions. And they're really fun to play. 200 to 150 BC African drums and then started going into Greece and Rome. So oh. again, that's where our merchant trade is starting to really take effect. And then it kind of dampens down or it just kind of stays like it is because then it just jumps to year 1200 AD. So now we're like well on into it. That's like after the Crusades and everything. And that's when people started using instruments as part of military and stuff. Same with like the 1400s. That's when they started making like medieval prototypes. They started experimenting more with metals. 1500 African drums arrive because of the slave trade. That's when it comes to the Americas. That is not so super great. The most popular percussion in around 1600s were like long drums and monk bells and jingle bells and stuff like that. And that's when the European military started adapting the drums for easier communication. Now, Africa also uses different African tribes. They will use drums to communicate among tribes. In 1650, that's when the first snare drum came into place. And snare drum's like a probably one of the biggest drum influence for me, just because that's what most people recognize. Mm-hmm. As in, like what we use in drum sets, that's what we recognize because they watch that movie Drumline. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> All my band nerd friends were snare drummers. There we go. Yeah. And then when you're like, oh, I want to be drumline. I want to be a snare drummer. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) that's cute. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And granted, when I was little too, I thought it was cool to be on the snare drum. Mm. Um, Because it feels like you're a more focal point. What's cool about the snare drum is that, of course, it's a cylinder with the head on the top. But people don't realize that there's actually another drum head on the bottom of of it and what makes it a snare drum is that there's actually coils on the bottom metal springs on the bottom 
that are really tight. And that is what's rattling to make it a snare drum. And people can actually switch the snares off to make it more of a lower bass tom. If you have a kid or yourself is thinking about being a part of a drum line, I recommend doing the bass drums. That's how you actually learn how to count and split and do all kinds of cool stuff. It's a lot more difficult than you think than playing snare. Like I ended up being on the bass drum line in college. Mm -hmm. God damn, that was the hardest thing <laughs> ever. Because <laughs> if you think it like this, if you, we had five bass drums, all different sizes and sounds. Bass one, three, and five. That's the high pitch, the middle pitch, and the low one. One, three, five. That's all going to be on your downbeat. Mm -hmm. Right? And if you're marching, that's right where your foot is. But if you're on bass drum two and four, so that's your middle drum and then your second to lowest, you're all on the upbeats. So that, if you're tapping your foot with me, is on, like if your toe's going up, that's where you are. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay, my band only had one bass drum, no. but I did not know any of this. We were very small. <laughs> That and that is great. splitting like your basic eighth notes, one and two and. So your basic drums are doing these. And then your other two drums are going. Okay, she's snapping two hands. How do you, this is like sorcery. <laughs> and talking. Like <laughs> talking, two different beats and she's talking. Holy shit. My mind is blown. Um, well, and that's and that's why that's the most basic. This is what separates the percussion from the rest of everybody else. Pretty much, it is like. But if you talk about tuning and musical notes, it's gone. <laughs> you want me to talk and snap my fingers and walk and chew gum at the same time? I'm your girl. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Carol of the bells that. Whatever that is, Christmas Carol. Carol Bills is like the best one because it's like. So your one hand is on triplets, triplet, 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 triplet. So it's like one, two, and three, one, two, and three. So you just like, you can go back and forth. And this one's just doing one and. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, it, it's people not are like, worthy. Oh, impressive. It's actually really easy. But when you get into really deep drumming and stuff, then you start splitting even more complicated rhythms. Because like that is just triplets, and then there's six on a beat, and so and so on. And percussion is Crazy. <laughs> the song is Hell and Choir. That is <laughs> But back to the drum line, like the drum timeline, the drum set wasn't really started until like the 20s, like the early 1900s. That's when we started adding a pedal to our bass drum. And by the 20s, that's when we really have the drum set that we have. And then by the 40s, that's actually when we had our double bass. So that is a bass drum with two kicks on it. And so their feet are just like running in place, basically. And it just goes, la, 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 la. It's crazy. How did that go? 
Follow And then by the 70s, that's when we started getting a little bit more electric. And then by the 80s, that's when we get more synthesized, you know. I feel like by now y'all know what's happening within the last <laughs> years. <laughs> but I just think that's cool. 1820s, so I'm going to go back just a little bit. 1820s is our classical period, and that is where we have the kettle drum or your timpanis, the snare, the gong, the vibraphone, which is like our marimba, but it's a metal. And it rings and has like a pedal with it. Do what? I said so metal. Yeah. So, <laughs> so metal. metal. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. That needs to be new merch. I love how you just brought it back in a circle. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> we started having a triangle and a marimba and our tambourine. And that's when it became more acceptable to have all of that in orchestras. All right. So that's stuff about drums. I'm almost done. It's funny. Like, no, 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 no. Don't apologize. I am loving every second of this. <laughs> now I'm going to actually talk about some cool drummers. I hate to say it, but drumming is a man's world. Almost like 75%. Yeah. Like I know when I was in school, I was the only girl on the drum line. But I feel like I paved it a little bit because by the time I got to college and I visited back, the whole drum line was girls. fuck yes yeah it was (laughs) it was just it was a lot of fun and (laughs) I remember my dad when I picked drums he's like (sighs) he's so disappointed he's like because you have long fingers why don't you play something that you actually can use your fingers for I'm like (laughs) as in don't give me that look Megan (laughs) (laughs) Um, as in like he wanted me to always play violin like a string Did y'all have that kind of stuff like at your school? Did y'all have strings? No. No, we didn't. <laughs> like small town. Like people actually play violin in school. What is this? What is I this? know, right? Yeah. Oh. They have like thousands in their class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was in a school of 450 and only 150 were in my class. So we were pretty small. and But we were the biggest in my area within two hours. So why are you laughing? What was your school? <laughs> we graduated 76. Ooh, I win 28. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to me, like when people are like, we graduated 500 people. We're so small. I'm like, <laughs> I know I saw your eyes getting bigger. Like what? what? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's pretty much the range. So yeah. yeah. I think yeah. we had a little over 300 people in our high school and stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> One of my favorite drummers, especially as I was a kid, is Buddy Rich. He's in the drumming world, he's probably a bit more famous just because he's got such a reputation. And I'll read a little bit on this article about him. And he's self proclaimed that he's the world's greatest drummer. <laughs> so yeah, I guess you gotta be a little cocky when you're a drummer. Half the oh, time. wow. Claimed. That's. I mean, he has a little bit of justification. Like he is, he was very talented. But he was kind of cocky, cocky bastard. So um, he possessed a technical command of his instrument. And he he really hasn't, no one's actually played like him. He began his career as a child star as Traps the Drum Wander. And afterwards, he gravitated towards jazz, working with Artie Shaw, Art Tatum, jazz at the Philharmonic, and Tommy 
Dorsey. And before starting his own big band recordings such as West Side Story, displayed Rich's incredible speed and finesse, which often overshadowed the fact that he was also just a really good accompanist. And he had like a really good solid for time, as in like tempo and whatnot. Yeah. And although he's known as like a tough band leader, but he was, he actually had like a really good personality and really good humor. And that's what made him popular. And he was a frequent guest on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And that's what I mean by popular. Mm-hmm. During the 70s, he was on the Tonight Show a lot. Oh, that's cool. And my dad is a bit influenced with that one, too. Like, he, when I showed interest in drumming, even though my dad didn't like it, he's <laughs> like, well, it's happening. So he then, like, <laughs> told me about Buddy Rich. Next is Art Blakely. His style of bebop was so aggressive that the term hard bop was coined to describe this music <laughs> that Art Blakely and the Jazz Messengers played. He was from the 1950s through the late 80s. Blakely came to major prominence in the late 40s as a member of Billy Eckenstein's band, which featured Miles Davis, Dexter Gordon, and Fats Navarro. Um, After starting the Jazz Messengers, Blakely became known as one who could spot and develop young talent. And that's really true because he, Lee Morgan, Wayne Shorter, and Freddie Hubbard, and there's like a list of tons of other really great people that he trained and got produced his drumming actually had a really distinctive african influence and was characterized by a strong hi-hat backbeats and and had all kinds of little press drum rolls which i know means nothing to you but it means a lot to me press <laughs> drum rolls are there's all kinds of drum rolls where you can like double tap so it's like more open and it's basically less bounce of the drumstick to the snare drum okay so you can let it roll and you can hear every little bounce to not being able to hear any of it. It's just a little sound. That's like a press roll. Like this one is it almost sounds like your phone vibrating. I'm learning so much. <laughs> I know you finally picked something I know. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> this is a drummer I have always looked up to and I still do. And her name is Sheila E. Ooh. Even though I said that there there are a lot more male drummers, like it was just a thing. And it's still just kind of a masculine thing. I don't know why. Like it feels like that to me, but I think it's because I've just grown with that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, or maybe because you have to carry a lot of heavy shit and women. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but like, oh, yeah. Having boobs and carrying a snare drum is really horrible <laughs> i can't imagine that's so much weight <laughs> oh, it's not even just the weight it, i mean the weight is awful but your harness you have a harness on and then you hook your snare drum to your harness and the harness is made out of metal and it's pressed against your chest um so itty bitty titties you're fine but if you got <laughs> you have to maybe order a special harness or bend it people stand on their harness and bend the metal so it fits their boobs oh well, that's a fun. It happened to a girl in college. It was really fun. <laughs> I mean, she's well gifted. I mean, but. Uh, but now they're actually starting to make harnesses that fit females better. And so I'm like, that's a positive in my mind. Like they're actually making that effort. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's progress, you know? 
Yeah, every little bit. Um, so Shinwei, e, it took a little while before people realized like what a powerhouse she is, and blame that on her initially being marketed as like kind of like a sex symbol because she played with Prince. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. When she first toured the Glamorous Life album, she was positioned as a front woman who snuck a few bars on the timbales, which are basically super tall drums. They're drums that are like four feet long and they're narrow and they're on a stand. So they usually like people stand while playing them. And it's usually with your hands, but you can play with sticks too. And so, so she would play during the instrumental breaks and then Prince had her behind the full drum set. So she, He's what really gave her the start and for the Sign of Times tour. Uh, Jaws dropped on a nightly basis, especially during the late night, jam-heavy after shows Prince would perform after the main event. And she later did a few Ringo tours and was very much the lead drummer giving new life to everyone else's hits. Wow. Really known for like doing solo stuff exactly. But she's still an amazing drummer. She still drums today. I think she's in her 60s now. And she's beautiful. And she is like a a mix of African and I believe Hispanic, maybe French. So like she's gorgeous with this like long, dark, wavy hair. And so like a goddess. <laughs> basically. So I've always really admired her. Wow. Another cool female drummer who I did not know about is Cindy Blackman. And this is the last drummer, so I will leave y'all after this. <laughs> oh, don't feel bad. I have enjoyed every second of this. Yeah, if you want, we can do an entire episode of drums and I would. I could talk for the six hours that we record. So with this, Cindy Blackman says, forget gender, Blackman's imagination and dazzling technical gifts ensure not only that she Heads this list of the best female drummers of all time, but stands out as one of the finest ones working today. She's a large part of the reason Lenny Kravitz's live band was killer, but she really blossomed in her jazz work and where she's played alongside a roll call of master improvisers, including Pharaoh Sanders and Ron Carter. Blackman can also do funk, whether it's like, and that's actually one of her most recent albums with Carlos Santana, that's her husband. What? <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. <laughs> One that I'm like, I'm like, oh, I've heard your work, but I didn't realize that was her. And I'm like, yeah. Oh. But her greatest work was with the short lived group Spectrum Road, a band dedicated to honoring jazz rock pioneer Tony Williams, and joined by one of the great fusion heads, Jack Bruce, Vernon Reed, and John Badesky. And she put up a fresh spin on some of the most challenging material any drummer has ever played. Oh, wow. She's a super awesome powerhouse. I totally recommend Cindy Blackman and Sheila E. Y'all should look her up. On the same article that I'm like looking off of, there is one lady. um, One article is supposed to be like the most influential drummers of all time. I looked at that list and I believe they're all men. It's like the top 50 drummers and they're all men. So I'm like, I can't (laughs) <laughs> so I wanted to do at least a couple of men and a couple of women. And this one is like the women that were involved with it. But I love the, this is Dottie. So I'm going to do one more. This is Dottie Dodgen. She's another jazz. So jazz is, is just a big drum thing. I don't know yeah. why. I was in jazz band. Jazz is just a big drummer thing. I think now we think of, jazz, of drummers more of 
I blame the movie Drumline. That's what we think of. <laughs> yeah. The jazz is actually probably the true drumming as, as since like the 20s. Yeah. I know like in other cultures, other countries, it's going to vary or whatever. But here in America, jazz is probably like really where it's at. I mean, when I think of like the the score of The Incredibles, mm-hmm. that was an amazing jazz, stuff like that. Jazz oh, yeah. is challenging for drum sets because the time is different. All of rock songs and stuff like that, as much as I love rock, it's probably my favorite genre. Um, it's boring. <laughs> it's so boring to play. They're like heavy metal and like drummers that will influence and they'll like push it to make it awesome. Mm-hmm. But talking about your basics, it's boring. Yeah. It's a very simple pattern. Add a little flare, maybe a stick flick and you're done. <laughs> stick flick. Um, basically like, let me do a little flip around half my finger and yeah <laughs> their minds <laughs> and they're like you're amazing and then like yeah. the next time you do it your finger cramps and you need like fuck up <laughs> a little it's happened. that's why you they have like 12 drumsticks all packed around them <laughs> just in case but jazz is what's really most challenging it's the most complicated rhythms it's got really good I mean, if you listen, if you read music, then you'll see the time signatures are just crazy. Time signature is what the beat is based on. And it's just weird. I remember the hardest thing. I remember the hardest thing in college was when my teacher gave me a basic rhythm. So like each limb is doing something different. My hands, my feet is doing something different. And he puts a book in front of me. He's like, all right, read that out loud while you're playing. What? <laughs> you are incredible. I never got good at it. I won't lie. <laughs> um, I would never I'm incredible. do any of that. That's true. <laughs> but um, I never got good at that because I have dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of ADD sprinkled in there. But... Which was not diagnosed at that time. His diagnosed the next year of that school year. Wow. It was, that was a fucking nightmare. And then for some reason, I thought if I would get closer to the paper, I could read it better. <laughs> uh, this Dottie lady, she was super awesome. She played with Benny Goodman, who's one of my favorite swing jazz people. Yes. There's a video of her. It's from 2013 when she's 84 and she's playing and she's singing. Yes, wow. get it. That's how I want to be. Oh, yeah. And she's playing with brushes. So if you look at this video, which hopefully you will, because I'll put it on our Facebook stuff. There's one cool thing on this women's article. Each drummer they have, they also have a video of them playing. Oh, cool. And so I highly recommend to check it out. And yeah, and I, I listened to a little bit of it. So yeah, she's using steel brushes, playing a nice, soft, not super flashy jazz piece, but she's also singing while she's doing it. And she's 84. I'm not going to judge anything about this. <laughs> that's impressive. So that's drums, y'all. 40 minutes later. No, I am. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was so great. Yeah. No. So that's why I, t- okay, I messaged Keena like right before we recorded. I'm like, this was the hardest one <laughs> for me. It's like yes. your baby. You can't pick just one. Yeah. 
It's funny because like I remember having to take percussion methods and I sucked at it royally. (laughs) The only one I did remotely okay in is like drum set. And I just remember like when we had to do like the accessories one. (laughs) 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 Was just looking at me like, what the fuck are you doing? I don't know. Oh my god! Which accessories are you talking about? (laughs) Like I know we had to like for percussion methods we had to do um, where we had like the table, the trap table or whatever you call it, Mm -hmm. and there was like a triangle on it, and then something else and something else, and we had the chimes also, and we had a piece of music that incorporated all of them, and we had to play it, you know, for the (laughs) and. It didn't matter how much I practiced. It was god awful. <laughs> I just remember like, looking at him and him looking at me and I'm like, yep. <laughs> Why are you in my class? Like, oh, it was terrible. Terrible. Um, yeah, for those who don't know, like, accessories or, like, percussion toys. And my mom always got a kick when I called them toys, but that's what uh, we always called them, percussion toys or accessories. They are, that's your cowbell. Um, Vibro Slap, I recommend checking that out because that's a fun one. More cowbell! <laughs> the Vibro Slap, if you listen to Crazy Train, that's what you're hearing in the very beginning. That's the Vibro Slap. Oh! There's the whip, which is, of course, two pieces of wood slapped together. Of course, wind chimes, all the other fun stuff. Like, it is so many goddamn little instruments. <laughs> so many. And triangle's a lot harder than you would think, so don't it even is. be like, oh, I can just hit a triangle. No, you can't. No, I'm so impressed with that triangle solo. It was amazing. God, it's like you think you look at it and you're like, yeah, I can pick that up and hit it. No, you got to hit it in a certain spot. And it's like, I know, like, there's so much thought of it. Like, okay, one, you need to hold it. None of your fingers are touching the metal. And (laughs) you also need, there's different kinds of triangles, like of what different metals they're made out of, different sizes, different timbres, and then you have your different sticks to strike the different triangles with. Then you have to consider, like, do you want a darker tone? Um, Have, like, more moodier triangle. Like, Lord of the Rings, those are all dark. You want dark cymbals, dark timbres, Mm -hmm. a marching machine. That's another fun progression instrument. (laughs) This is amazing. Like, clarinet, yeah. it's like, what kind of reed do you want? Like, that was it. <laughs> and a spit swab. <laughs> yeah, you just suck on your reed for a while. You're fine. And then you have, like, a thousand things to choose from. Yeah. Well, even with the triangle, you're like, like where you hit it, you like, like, where do you want Yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's just insane. And people are like, do you just, like, hit stuff? No, I really, if anybody learns anything from this episode, it's just how fucking badass percussion is. Yeah. How, like, intricate and how different (laughs) and how amazing. Holy shit. You're also going to learn how much I don't know other stuff on other episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Because of my confidence level of talking about this shit. Percussion methods gave me lessons in humility. That's all I'll say. That. <laughs> that I feel that so much. That was brass methods for me. God. And I'm musically inclined, and it was not. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was cocky, I guess. I can pick up a triangle. I can hit a chime. I'm yeah. sure everybody has thought at some point that they could pick up a triangle until the moment presents itself, and you're like, no, no I cannot. I know. I've seen so many people... Do like the dinner bell ring 
orange triangle. And they think that's like playing it. I'm like, can you, <laughs> can you not? <laughs> and just real quick, because it's going to bother if I don't say it. The marching machine. This is this is my autism coming out. Um, <laughs> that's what it feels like. My OCD about it. The marching machine is several cylinders of wood that are tied together in a grid. So imagine like you're looking at a grid paper and every square has a cylinder of wood that are about four inches long. It's all tied together with yarn and they're kind of loose. And what you do is you slam them down at sort of an angle and where it sounds like multiple feet are marching. Oh, wow. That's a marching machine. So like, one year in percussion ensemble, we played Battle of the Urukai, which is, of course, Lord of the Rings based. And it's supposed to be like the Urukai are marching into war. And so we have all of us marching, of course, on stage. And that's more for looks. The real sound was the marching machine. So it just sounds like 100 people because we have about, I think it was like 30 pegs, maybe more, maybe 50, all tied together. And then when they slam, almost all at once, you don't want it perfectly right on it. You want to have like multiple feet are slamming down. That's a marking machine. That's so cool. It's going to bother me. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. That is so amazing. Oh, I have so many things to Google. So, yeah, we're going to end on weird. I mean, why not? We'll just, we'll just get weird. And I figure at this point, what's more weird than Weird Al? Oh my gosh. When you told me parody, I'm like, I hope this is weirdo. It is. (laughs) I was blown away, like researching him. He is magnificent. (laughs) And now you guys are going to know too. So he did make me have a new, like, respect for him because I don't know how I feel about Weird Al, to be honest. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm older than you guys. So when I was like, middle school I guess we didn't have a middle school we just said elementary and high school so I guess what most people consider middle school was when like Amish Paradise came out and that was like our jam like the weird and nerd kids like we were like yes (laughs) so I just remember band trips you know us just singing these non-stop so it was just a huge I, I mean it was just like the first time weird was like super cool in my childhood I guess so maybe that's why I like him because, you know, I was always a weird kid, so this was never... This, yeah. I feel that. Yeah. I think a lot of us do if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Weird Al Yankovic was born Alfred Matthew Yankovic, which I did not know his name was Alfred. 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 And he was born in Downey, California on October 23rd, 1959. Cool. Yeah, his father was Yugoslavian and had moved to California after serving in World War II. And then his mother was half Italian and half English. Wow. That's just freaking cool. Oh, I just, interesting mix. I know. And his career in music began the day before his sixth birthday when a door-to-door salesman traveling through Linwood offered his parents a choice, choice of an accordion or a guitar lesson. And then his parents chose the accordion because they were, quote, Convinced it would be a revolutionary rock instrument. Wow. They're cool. sort of right. 
Yes. <laughs> Coolest parents ever. Right? It's going to revolutionary rock music. Let's do this. He's going to be something. <laughs> so he continued his lessons at school for three years before continuing to learn on his own. He said he was a big fan of Elton John. And he said goodbye, Yellow Big Road was partly how he learned to play rock and roll on the accordion. I know. Meanwhile, he claimed that Tom Lair, Stan Freeberg, Spike Jones, Alan Sherman, Sheila Silverstein, and Frank Zappa, and a lot of other people like that, wonderfully sick and twisted artists that he was exposed to, formed who he was going to be. And the most important person at that time was Dr. Demento in his radio show. So they were just inspirations for like weird comedic parody music. Hmm. The Demento guy comes in later. We'll figure out who he is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Al attended kindergarten a year early and then he skipped second grade. So super smart person. I didn't realize how incredibly I knew he was smart to do what he did. He had to be pretty smart, but he's like a freaking genius. And he says that his scholastic promotion was not popular with older classmates. Quote, I got my fair share of verbal abuse, but I learned to run pretty fast, so I didn't get it beat up a lot. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> Even watching Slade's out. <laughs> and then he said that he, when he wasn't running away, his second grade, which was actually third grade recess, was spent pretending to be Mr. Terrific, a TV character that took a power pill to make him a superhero. So that's just kind of sweet and sad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm getting beat up a lot. So in my head, I'm going to be a superhero and I'm going to run really fast and nobody will beat me up. Like, he actually graduated from Linwood High School at the age of 16 and he was valedictorian. Wow. I mean, I like to think that I'm somewhat intelligent. And nobody let me skip a grade, so I'm just... <laughs> yeah, like, you hear these stories where people skip grade. How did that happen? I don't know. I really wish I would have. <laughs> Could have got a head start on this whole college thing that took me 20 years. No, I wasn't ready to be an adult yet. <laughs> <laughs> and he also earned a degree in architecture from the California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. Cool. Sorry, Californians. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. And while he was in college, he worked as a disc jockey at campus radio station. And then that's where he learned, like, earned the nickname Weird Al. Because he was really into weird parody stuff. I never thought, I never put two in together that Al was Alfred. I just always assumed Al was just Al, you know. I'm learning so much. <laughs> In 1979, he sent his My Baloney, a parody of Nax My Sharona, to Dr. Demento, a syndicated radio host specializing in novelty songs and curiosities. It was recorded in a bathroom across the hall from his college radio station with only his accordion and his vocals. And then the song became popular enough with Demento's audience that he was able to release a single. Hmm. That's cool. Like, his big break was a bathroom song. <laughs> Yeah. I think how many people take selfies or do TikToks. Yeah. I'm like, that sounds, that makes perfect sense now. That's true. Now it does. But like in the 80s, this is like unheard of. Like in the 80s, who had a recording device? <laughs> to record themselves? Weird Al. Weird did. <laughs> After graduating in 1980, he did Another One Rides the Bus. 
a parody of Another One Bites the Dust. He recorded live in Dr. Demento's studios. The song became an underground hit, and he followed it up with I Love Rocky Road, which was a satire of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I Love Rock and Roll. After hooking up with the noted session guitarist and producer Rick Derringer, he was signed to Scotty Brothers, which issued his debut LP, Weird Al Yankovic, in 1983. And I also didn't realize how old this was. Like, I remember him as a kid, but I didn't realize it was like early 80s that he had his start. And this album featured the song Ricky, which was to the tune Hey Mickey, but also inspired by I Love Lucy. And it was issued as a single, and it hit the top 100 charts. And it had a music video that became a staple of the newfound MTV network. Remember the days when MTV actually had music videos? <laughs> I only, I know, I can't remember if it was MTV or VH1, but I know one of them had a morning segment for like two hours in the morning. They would play music videos. I think it was VH1. Yeah, I think so too. And then the rest was reality TV shows, like The Flavor of Love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember the, like, freaking, oh, what's his name? Oh, my God. Oh, he's still, he's the host of The Voice. He did the VH1 countdown. Carson Daly? Yes, Carson (laughs) Daly. I remember watching him in, like, the top ten or whatever. (laughs) That was like the first time I heard Foo Fighters uh, Hero, not Hero, uh, Learn to Fly, because that video was number one for like ever. Oh, yeah, good times. Anyway, after Michael Jackson's Beat It became the most acclaimed video in the medium's brief history, Yankovic recorded Eat It. (laughs) Do you guys remember that? Eat It. Eat It. It was 1984, which was the year I was born. In 3D, the Eat It video, which mocked Beat It clips scene for scene, became an MTV smash, and the Grammy-winning single reached the top 15. Ugh, first time ever that a parody had done both those things. Wow. So Weird Al didn't think that Michael Jackson would actually agree to parody Beat It, but he was pleasantly surprised to hear when his representative said that Michael thought Eat It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Years later, when Yankovic came up with the idea for Fat for Jackson's Bad, Jackson not only agreed to the parody, but told him he could use the set for Badder music video for Fat, which <laughs> would win the 1988 Grammy for Best Concept Music Video. <laughs> wow. And then the two met in person twice. The first time was backstage at one of Michael's shows where Weird Al presented Jackson with a gold record of the album Even Worse. And the second time was after the TV show taping where Jackson said he would screen UHF to his friends, which was Weird Al's movie that didn't do so hot. We'll talk about it in a little bit. At Neverland Ranch. <laughs> when the two were studio neighbors working on their respective albums, Al would occasionally receive a little note on the door that said, hello from next door, love, MJ. Say a little bromance. Wow. <laughs> it's so sweet. <laughs> Snack All Night was slated to be Yankovic's interpretation of Black or White, but Michael wasn't really into that one. He considered Black or White to be a message song for him, and he was uncomfortable with any, like, comedy or parody, you know, undercutting it. So Weird Al later admitted that Jackson did him a huge favor because without that song, he moved on to a better single. Dare to be Stupid was the first comedy record ever released in a new compact disc format. (laughs) We are so old. Do you remember when like CDs came out? Like, and that was a huge thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Man. So it featured Like a Surgeon, which was a takeoff of Madonna's hit Like a Virgin. And reportedly, Madonna and an unnamed friend made history while talking one day. Madonna wondered aloud if Weird Al would turn Like a Virgin into Like a Surgeon. And the friend was mutual friend of Yankovic manager Jay Levy. Levy? Levy. Levy then told Yankovic and it soon became the first single and video from the Dare to Be Stupid album. And it was the first and last time a musician successfully offered a suggestion to him. And he openly discourages to this day and says, don't give me ideas to parody. Not going to do it if you tell me. (laughs) I just thought that was funny. Madonna's his only one. Relatable. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like if that's your art. Yeah. You're like, don't tell me how to do my job. I can understand that. That's- yeah. Anyway, that song went gold, but in 1986 Polka Party, it didn't do so great, and it charted only briefly, prompting many to write him off. In the late 80s, he starred in a feature film called UHF, which he also co-wrote, and it didn't go so well. That's the one that we talked about with Michael Jackson. And then after the commercial failure of that movie, he returned to the recording studio in 1990 to record original songs for a new album. And when it came time to record for parodies, he ran into a problem. There was nothing really good to make fun of. And then he was turned down by Michael Jackson. And then Nirvana shows up and he's like, this is amazing. Got this. So he turned Smells Like Teen Spirit into Smells Like Nirvana. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. The song made fun of the fact that it was nearly impossible to understand Nirvana singer Kurt Cobain's words. The Nirvana (laughs) album, Nevermind, and its distinctly iconic cover of Baby Chasing the Dollar Bill. Nirwater gave Al the concept for his album, so it's Al chasing the dollar bill on the cover. And he entitled it Deep End, alluding to the cover art. He's swimming after a donut on a fish hook. Wow. And in the Smells Like Nirvana music video, he's using the same janitor and the same cheerleaders as the Nirvana music video. Hmm. After the 1993 Alapalooza, he resurfaced in 1996 with Bad Hair Day, his highest charting record to date, thanks to the success of Amish Paradise. And that's what I remember distinctly. <laughs> like He came into my life. Apparently, Coolio was not cool with that. So after Amish Paradise, Weird Al always made sure to speak directly to artists and never <laughs> relied on their management. In 1996, you know, Coolio's song was just the hit. And he's like, I'm going to do this. And he asked some management, like management, like, can I parody this? And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's going to be great. And then Coolio came out and said, quote, I ain't with that. No, I didn't give any sanction. I think that my song was too serious. I ain't like that. It's not like it's beat it. Beat It was a party song, but I don't think Gangster's Paradise represented something more than that. And I really, honestly, truly don't appreciate him desecrating the song like that. In Coolio part. pissed. Coolio is <laughs> very pissed. <laughs> you know what's sad is I probably know Amish Paradise better than the other one. So Weird Al apologized, claiming that Coolio's managers and label gave him the belief that Coolio was cool with the parody. One year later, Coolio rapped Quote, fools be in the bars unadvanced with a switch, uppercuts, and fight kicks with Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> on his song Throwdown 2000. Coolio eventually got over it and approached Yankovic at a 2006 consumer electronics show to make peace. Asked later about the whole incident, Coolio said that he really thought it out. Quote, I was like, wait a minute, 
I was like, Coolio, who the fuck do you think you are? He did Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson didn't get mad, end quote. <laughs> wow. Adding that complaining about Authors Paradise was one of the dumbest things in his entire career and that the parody was funny as shit. Coolio claimed that Al invited him to appear to wear Al's 3D film, Al's Brain, but the money just didn't add up, so he passed. Hmm. Uh, Next, Eminem denied permission to make a music video for Lose Yourself parodies. Even though Eminem agreed to allow Lose Yourself to be parodied in audio form as the song Couch Potato. (laughs) (laughs) He decided that the music video would be harmful to his image or career. Hmm. Oh, Eminem. (laughs) (laughs) Mom, Yeti. (laughs) (laughs) So the video would have been like the epitome of his entire album. So because he couldn't have the music video, we would all had to redo the whole thing. So that's kind of shit. Wow. Yeah. I thought this was the most hilarious thing. So Prince has repeatedly refused to be parodied and doesn't want Weird Al to even look at him was like a headline mm-hmm. at one point. So throughout the 80s and 90s, he kept repeatedly asked for permission to, you know, securitize <laughs> Prince's work. And it was always denied to the point that he eventually got the hint and was like, it's not going to happen. And he thought it was very personal because... <laughs> He got a telegram from his lawyers, Prince's lawyers, the night before the American Music Awards, demanding that he couldn't even make eye contact with him. (laughs) (laughs) This is a diva move. (laughs) And then Yankovic said that he later learned that anybody that was seated remotely close to Prince got the same message or whatever. So he's like, I didn't take it too personally, but he's like, between you and me, I looked at him a few times. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I would do the same. How can you like tell people not to make eye contact? Especially when it's like it's Prince. You know he's going to be dressed a bit outlandish. You know he's yeah. kind of He was like a magnificent human. Of course, you want to look at him. It just it just makes me laugh. And this was just adorable. So in 1999, Weird Al took us back to Star Wars with The Saga Begins, and it was a parody of American Pie. So Don McLean was confused several times of his own song. So he listened to this so many times that when he was performing live American Pie, he would forget the words, start singing the Weird Al version. I thought that was just so adorable. Wow. And then I also read that he wrote The Saga Begins before the movie came out. So he just went online and tried to find as many spoilers as he could and wrote the song before the movie came out. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, for sure. Ingevich did get married to Suzanne, oh Jesus, Krajewski in 2001. And they had a daughter named Nina, who was born in 2003. Straight out of Linwood came out in 2006 with the single White Nerdy. I know everybody knows that song. You have to know that song. It's amazing. Which was a parody of Chameleonaire's hit Riding Dirty. Chameleonaire couldn't be happier that Weird Al parodied his ride and claiming that it gave his song a new mega record feel <laughs> and credited it for giving him the 2007 Grammy for Best Rap Performance by a duo group. So I like that where he was like, yeah, man. That parody just got me a Grammy. I'm down. That was probably 
my first real intro to Weird Al. Like, I know I probably knew a little bit about him, but yeah. that one is what really hit home with me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, such a good song. <laughs> the White Nerdy video amassed over 86 million views on YouTube. And this is like, what, 2006? That's huge. And the thing that blew my mind is one of his writers, or two of his writers, was Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele. Oh, I love them. Really? What? <laughs> this is before they even had a show or anything. Yeah. Wow. This is amazing. And it was the only, and currently, the only Billboard Top 100 hit to make the top 10, peaking at number 9. Just wow. Yeah. And then it's 13th album in 2011, Alpocalypse, skewered the Lady Gaga songs of Miley Cyrus, like Party in the CIA and Performing This Way. <laughs> in 2014, he returned with Mandatory Fun, for which he released eight videos, and it had things on sites like the Wall Street Journal, Yahoo, Nerdist, College Humor, and YouTube. So he's kind of like, instead of doing albums now, he's doing websites. And he did video parodies for things like Pharrell Williams, Happy, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, Lords Royals, and Iggy Azalea's Fancy. The album became the first LP to land number one on the Billboard 200 after opening with 104,000 copies. So that's pretty cool. Upon his release, he announced that the album would be his last. He says he's not giving up on music, but he's more of a singles artist. So now from now on, he's just going to do one song at a time. It's like, fuck albums. Just going to do what I like. Well, and now, like, stuff is all on iTunes and whatnot. I, I don't really see almost the point of albums hardly anymore because everything's so digitalized. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I very it'll, it'll go to all of that, all the singles, eventually. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. He has also hosted the children's show called The Weird Owl Show and has authored children's books such as When I Grow Up and My New Teacher and Me. I did not know he was a children's author. The more you know. Actually, I'm a librarian. <laughs> yeah, I was a teen librarian. I didn't get to do any of the cool kids stuff. Although I saw one link that said that they are working on an animated TV series based on his children's books, and it's a partnership with Jim Henson. Hmm. So, like, that's going to be amazing. Like, cool puppets and shit. Yeah. Uh. So he's remained a staple of film and television. He's appeared on The Simpsons, 30 Rock, The Goldbergs, How I Met Your Mother. He performed live at the Primetime Emmys. He starred in a lot of concerts. He's been on specials for Disney, VH1, Comedy Central. And uh, he was the headliner for Comedy Bang Bang in 2015. So he's just like literally all over the place. Uh, more recently, he's been on BoJack Horseman, which is like a show that I need to watch probably, but I haven't watched yet. So it's good. It's really good. He's been on Gravity Falls, Adventure Time, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, Wander Over Yonder, and the DC animated feature Batman vs. Robin. Well, then. He's a busy man. He's got 2000- a pretty good resume. He's very impressive. In 2017, NECA Toys released a second in its line of retro-clothed Weird Al action figures. (laughs) And then in 2018, they released Funko Pops. I didn't know he had a Funko Pop. I need one of those. I have lots of them. Barnes & Noble. They're really adorable. (laughs) My little Jack Sparrow right here. And he just space-planted. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) 
On March 2018, he brought us the beautiful Hamilton Polka, which was a frantic tour de force mashup of 14 songs from the Broadway smash commissioned by Lin-Manuel Miranda himself and released as part of his Hamel Drops series. Hamel Drops. (laughs) And then on August 27th, uh, 2018, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce awarded Weird Al with the 2,643rd star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's a lot of stars. I didn't realize how many there were. I mean, I know people get them, but I didn't realize it was almost 3,000. That's a lot. <laughs> and then one of the last things I found is that he doesn't have to legally seek out permission to parody songs, but he always asked for it anyway. So under the fair use provisions of the U.S. copyright law, he doesn't have to ask permission for original artists to satirize his works or her works as long as the royalties are paid. But to stay on friendly terms, he always asks permission and is always really nice about it. So wow. I'm like, I'm like, go to the people now. I'll discover that if you don't seek out original artist approval, you can have a tough time getting a label to release your latest single. In okay. 1981, he released another one, Rides the Bus, a parody of Queen's Another One Bites the Dust, without asking the band. And then the record labels were like, fuck you. And he had a heart. Mm-hmm. Damn it, fly. And. Da, 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 da. Can you make that a t shirt? Fuck you, fly. Damn it, fly. Yeah. And just, a little, and just a hand. Like, I need you to also like have that motion too. <laughs> No. So they, it just, Texas flies are really mean. Like in Arkansas, it's like you swat them away, they go away. Here, they just continually dive bomb you until you eventually murder them. So anyway, he thought he had permission to do it, and he didn't. So he decided to go ahead and make his first national TV appearance on April 21st, 1981. On Tomorrow with Tom Snyder and Queen eventually gave their blessing but they referred to him as Mad Al, but they were not very happy about it. So after that, he was <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with that mess anymore. And he says that about two to three percent of the time he gets a no from the artist or record label. And there's been some notable rejections, even though Led Zeppelin's guitarist Jimmy Page is a fan. He indicated he would not approve of the polka medley of Zeppelin's tunes. Still is- <laughs> Still a sample of Black Dog was allowed to be entrapped in a closet parody. Paul McCartney didn't get permission for Wings Live and Let Die because the altered version would have been chicken pot pie and he is a vehement vegetarian and would not have it. Makes sense. Oh, it could have been fake chicken. (laughs) There's some like good fake meat out there. In some cases, the artist agrees, but is overruled by the label. James Blunt initially said that it would be a huge compliment to have your beautiful change to your pitiful. (laughs) Atlantic Records said no thanks. (laughs) But he actually, uh, Yankovich released a version as a free MySpace download to avoid trouble with Atlantic. MySpace. I mean, MySpace was amazing. Back in the day when we learned how to code just to have, like, fun backgrounds. <laughs> yeah. I did like MySpace. I love how you personalized you could make it. Yeah. yeah. Foo Fighters was my background music. <laughs> Mine was Mad World. <laughs> like, I know that's so depressing, but I love that song. It's a good song. 
Oh God, I miss MySpace. I need to come back. It's like I'm I'm 14 and I'm deep. No. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be short. An example of no being turned into a yes. Daniel Powder initially refused to have bad day parodied as you've been a bad date, but changed his mind. <laughs> he had the change of heart literally day before he recorded White and Nerdy. So that's one of those things, like, I guess we're like, this is a better idea, you know, because it's better for them. Like, it's good publicity. I don't know. One last little thing. Is there's a reason that Weird Al prefers to be a headline and it's not because he's a diva? In 1982, him and his newly formed band was so bad. They were in their first major gig, and it was a huge disaster. The band opened for a then-popular new wave band called Missing Persons, which nobody's heard of, at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And they were the receiving end of an assorted thrown objects for an entire 45-minute set. So people just chunking shit at them for 45 oh, minutes, right? He said... Basically, he's like, even as I was walking to my car in the parking lot, a 12-year-old boy comes up to me and says, are you Weird Al? I say yes. And he's like, you suck. And then throw something at him. Oh, my God. That's so you, terrible. Fuck you, kid. Like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? <laughs> After that, him and his band agree never to be anyone's opening act ever again. And tell... In 1987, they did open for the monkeys, and they did say that those fans were more civil. But <laughs> more civil, was, yeah. It's like, what's wrong with you? People are so mean. Oh, that's really was, rude. <laughs> I mean, just go to the bathroom, go get snacks or something. And now people show up late anyways. They don't even come for the yeah. That's now. true. They show up when they want to. I just thought it was sweet where he's like, I don't headline because I'm a diva. I just headline because I don't want people to throw shit at me. Like, okay, that's fair. That would. Yeah. Megan, what's your take on Weird Weird Al? I don't know. Like, it's always funny because, like, David really likes Weird Al and has always, like, sang his parody songs. And I'm always like, I roll. But (laughs) better now. And there are some, like, that I like. But I think... This happens to me where, like, I really don't like artists and stuff for whatever reason, my prejudgment or whatever. And then I'll learn <laughs> about them and I'm like, hey, they're actually really talented. And maybe I should not be an asshole. <laughs> I think that's this moment. So, <laughs> Which, you know, I think a lot of people, if you've never tried to parody a song or you've never, you probably don't realize, like, how much work you went into it. Yeah. I mean, I guess some people might. It probably seems like he's taking popular songs and, like, ripping them off, but I don't know. I tried to parody songs for the library for, like, the kids to do. It's hard. <laughs> and that's why I have a newfound respect for it, because I used to yeah. do it all the time. Yeah, one really of our motifs is the fact that words are hard. That's what we say constantly. Yeah. And so for me to think of think of lyrics to match up to someone else's melody like it's one thing if you come up with like mm-hmm. a melody or you write the lyrics you're kind of hearing a melody in your head but to hear this you just think of different things and it yeah. actually makes sense because it's so rhythmic uh, too yeah. yeah i i know i've always kind of respected of his use of words and everything like his vocabulary but i think what i really realized like oh my gosh he really is a musician 
was was when he started doing Hamilton. And I know that's probably way too recent. <laughs> like I should realize, <laughs> um, because Hamilton he didn't he didn't parody it. He actually just made a medley. He put them all together, like several of the songs. And so when he described all of what he put work into Hamilton, like five part harmony and all this other stuff, I'm like, okay, a lot of work went into this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll have to check. Well, Quest out. Love was like told told Lynn. He's like Weird Al did better than you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I always love parody songs. Like my friend Ray that I talk about all the time that passed away. Like that was her jam. She would karaoke and she would turn every song into a parody about one of us just on the spot. I'm like that's just that's a talent I would never be able to do on key. Uh, I mean, that's just (laughs) good times. Good times. I love Family Guy's parodies. Yeah. Mentioning that Christmas one is the is what made me think of it. And it's, what was it? (laughs) He did Carol the Bells. Carol the Bells. Man. I need to go to bed. Um, it's, it's bedtime, y'all. So whatever that song, Christmas Carol is called, I'm not gonna even try it again. But he's just like, oh my god, here comes Jesus, and he doesn't look too happy. <laughs> <laughs> Which also, Seth MacFarlane is probably one of the great parodiers too, because he is an amazing singer. Yes. Yes. I'll never forget when I was in high school and middle school, I played in the orchestra for the local theater in Mina. Mm-hmm. And every spring they had a musical. And one year we did the Music Man. And in the Music Man, there's a song called Shapoopy. <laughs> I know it's a funny word, but it's all about quoting, a, like courting a girl. And Family Guy does it perfectly. It's actually not. <laughs> A parody at all it's like perfect dancing and the song exactly i can't forget about this guy mike seeing me studying the score of it he's like ha 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 is that song from family guy <laughs> <laughs> he's like shabooby that's funny is that from family i'm like uh this is from a musical music man and it's from the 50s right <laughs> like, i'm sorry nothing family guy does is like completely original yeah 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 in the best respect possible because it's oh, hilarious. it's hilarious but when he just said i'm like really <laughs> megan thank you so much for hanging out with us for six hours yeah i mean it's been- <laughs> <laughs> i don't really have a lot of human contact right now so okay <laughs> good i'm like secretly like i hope she's not like no her foot is you. like inching away Ready for me. No, no, this is great. Oh no, this has been amazing. It's been so fun to meet you. Yeah. This has been a great episode. I'm just so excited. Like music has been a really good theme. The one thing I know. (laughs) And it's true, like most of my segments are only like maybe 15 minutes long. (laughs) So this is like the longest one of probably the most I've ever talked. 
on the podcast. It was so good though. It's, yeah. and, well, it's his music and because it's Megan. Like this is the first time. <laughs> I know. It's like you, and then we've had my friend Carrie from high school because she's now a bounty hunter. She's fucking badass. So I'm like, you have I have to- never heard of someone actually being a bounty hunter. <laughs> right. I hadn't yeah, even told Meg. Like I thought that was just on TV show, but no, it's a thing apparently. Wow. PI. That's what she really is, is PI, but she's kind of it's kind of the same. How she described it, I'm like, bounty hunter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah. So thanks for listening. If you're still here. <laughs> if you're still here, yeah. And thank you again, Megan. It's been a lot of fun. I've I've really enjoyed being able to talk with you again. I have too. I've known you for five hours now and i feel like i've known you for years yeah it's been great i really appreciate it and i enjoy you guys a lot (laughs) it's not as awkward as you thought it would be no in front of a live audience of a few people (laughs) that's why i tell people everybody's nervous when they start and i'm like give it five minutes you won't be nervous anymore you'll be like oh man no we'll fuck up enough for you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah. or (laughs) see kina Swatting at the imaginary fly. They're not imaginary. <laughs> I did see one. <laughs> I saw one, and that one, that one was beast. Like if it was that big for me to see it through a camera, <laughs> it's like a steroid fly. In my, oh, there went. Did you see it? No, nope. I've never, I've never <laughs> been bit by flies before. Like they bite here. Like what is wrong with them? Biting flies. Yeah, I've never been bit by a fly in Arkansas. And then here they just like bite you. It's and they're huge and they just dive bomb constantly. They don't go away when you swat at them. They just bite back. <laughs> it's terrible. I don't like it. <laughs> like I keep on saying like I love Texas. I love it. I love the food. I love being here. I like not having cold shit, but I'm allergic to everything. All the bugs hate me. It's just <laughs> It's all Texas. Like, Tejas. Yay. It's great. I love I love Southern goodbyes because we're like, all right, this is so great. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm just as guilty of this. Like, oh this yeah. Can you, you remember like when you're a kid and everybody hugs like 20 times and you're just like, it is like a hoe. <laughs> and by then you're like, mom, I love your car. Like <laughs> <laughs> I know I used to go sit in the car and still be out there for like an hour. <laughs> yep. Okay. You have to. I don't know. We're going to talk more often. All right, guys. All right. We'll see you next week. Okay, bye. 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 <laughs>